0: What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Parker Lewis. Parker is the head of business development at Unchained Capital. And Unchained is a Bitcoin native financial services firm. They offer collaborative custody using multi-sig and they also offer Bitcoin backed loans. Um, they also have an incredible blog and Parker is one of the main contributors to that blog. His series, uh, which is called Gradually Then Suddenly, uh, is phenomenal. I think Parker's one of the, the best writers in the space, in my opinion. And he tackles a lot of the either big misconceptions around big, uh, Bitcoin or some of the uh, big topics that kind of convey the, uh, the impact or the implications uh, of what Bitcoin represents and what a Bitcoin-denominated world might look like. I've been reading his stuff over the past year, always really, really enjoy it and anticipate when new pieces come out and so uh, I've been chomping at the bit to get him on the show for a chat and uh, last week we put it together. So the first you know, 15 minutes or so, we're talking about uh, Unchained, some of the new stuff they're doing there um, and what they're trying to do in the future, the role they're trying to play in the industry. And then we just have a general chat about uh, our mutual passion for Bitcoin, what, how things might work in a Bitcoin-denominated world, um, what's currently going on with the whole COVID situation. Uh, and a bunch of other stuff. So just a a really enjoyable chat. Parker's obviously a super bright guy, and uh, it was an honor to get the chance to speak with him. So that's it. Hope you enjoy. Well, first of all, man, thanks for for taking the time. I'm sure you're an extremely busy guy. Um, Of course, I've heard you on other podcasts and really appreciate uh, your perspective and the way you articulate things. I think you're one of the best uh, in the business at um, articulating many of the very important components of, of this stuff, and giving it the proper context so that people can understand it um, in the way that it, it probably should be understood, and dis- dispelling a lot of uh, a lot of the FUD that comes along with this stuff. So, uh, very excited for for today's discussion. But for people that uh, in, in my audience that maybe aren't familiar with you or your work at Unchained, uh, maybe we can get the uh, the Cole's notes kind of background and biography, and then we'll we'll take it from there.
1: Yeah, sounds good. Well, um, glad to join and appreciate you having me on. And I think you know, kind of, you know, just first, you know, when I, um, you know, first got into Bitcoin, I was I was working at a hedge fund at the time, um, doing you know global macro research. Uh, really, um, actually, had the you know the fortune of being able to meet Safe Dean Amos. Um, kind of really, I don't know if you want to say serendipitously, but it wasn't related to Bitcoin. Um, But, but, you know, he was really, you know, someone very early on that helped me understand a lot of dynamics around monetary economics. And and then just through independent research that I was doing on the Fed, things just started to click for me, um, you know, related to Bitcoin and ended up uh, leaving what I was doing. Uh, That was in 2017. Um, Didn't really take a year off, but just took time to to really go further down the, the Bitcoin rabbit hole um, ended up meeting um, Joe Kelly and Drew Bonsell, the the two co-founders at Unchained, um, just after I moved back to Austin, and uh, you know kind of really wasn't looking to do something at that time, um, but you know we continued to have conversations, uh, exchanged ideas, and then they asked me to, to join and come help uh, build out Unchained. Um, so you know really you know at Unchained, you know we we really think of ourselves as a Bitcoin native financial services company, um, so. Um, you know, we we view the world uh, as one in which Bitcoin is money um, and that the the logical things to to provide and, and that, you know, what we need ourselves. And that's really kind of one, one of the ways that we think about it. What are things that we need? What are things that people that we know need? And then just more generally, as we think about the trajectory of Bitcoin, you know, if Bitcoin is money, then the thing that people need are financial services. And uh, how do we do that in a way that maximizes the strengths of the Bitcoin protocol? Um, and so um, while we're not a bank, um, you know, you know, I like to think of ourselves as, as you know, the future of what a, a Bitcoin private bank will look like. Uh, we just do it in a way that's native to Bitcoin that, um, you know, and that means in, in the case of custody, we, um, you know, we are not a custodian. We provide technology and services that help people better secure their Bitcoin through multi-signatures such that they can control their private keys. Um, it's a really kind of foundational idea of our company that, Um, You know, not only Bitcoin, but individuals achieve better security outcomes, the more people that have keys. Um, And then, you know, we also provide lending. Uh, So for for people that um, need dollar loans or or dollar liquidity, um, we secure Bitcoin, issue loans. And then, you know, when the loan is repaid, we return the Bitcoin. Uh, But as Unchain evolves, it will really be, you know, kind of evolving the suite of services, Um, And really tailored to kind of what is in demand uh, as Bitcoin evolves. So, um, you know, we are working on the ability for people to uh, buy and sell directly into cold storage multi-sig vaults. Uh, We haven't yet released that, Uh, but but, but just, you know, really thinking about any traditional service that a bank offers, Unchained will offer in the future, Um, but just kind of tackling each different item at, you know, where we see the most acute needs and the most demand in the market.
0: Yeah. And that's been, you know, clear and Unchain has offered, excuse me, uh, a lot of really, uh, you know, just products that make sense and that are very kind of usable and in need uh, in the community. I know Caravan was a a release, I think, a few months ago, right? And this is just making it easier to basically interact with multi-sig and, and, um, you know, and and that's something that a lot of people haven't done yet, uh, but there probably will be more demand for it in the future. But I wanted to ask, um, what... I don't know much about how Bitcoin backed loans work. And I think a lot of people may be in the same boat. Can you just kind of tell me the mechanics of how that works?
1: Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll explain that. And then I do want to come back because you didn't mention Caravan because that, that is a big piece that I didn't mention that that's core to what, what it is that we're doing um, on yeah. the Bitcoin, Bitcoin backed loan side. Um, so, you know, generally for people that have, you know, you know, you know, a material amount of Bitcoin, you know, been in Bitcoin for a long time, uh, generally, uh, you know, have a, a higher net worth. But a lot of it's derived from Bitcoin, um, you know, kind of see the happening coming or just realistically over time, recognizing that Bitcoin is a uh, is a finitely scarce resource. And, and rather than sell that Bitcoin today and, and you know, have potential tax consequences of that, uh, people can take loans from us. Uh, when they do, um, you know, we, we offer, a, you know, essentially they provide um, uh, 200% of the, the the advanced loan balance or we, we advance funds at 50% LTV. So if somebody wants, uh, you know, our minimum loan side is, is $10,000. If, if somebody wants a $10, $10,000 loan, individuals would post $20,000 worth of Bitcoin. The way that we do that is each individual uh loan and each individual client has its own multi-sig vault with unchained and the bitcoin is held in that vault and can be auditable on chain throughout the duration of a loan um you know as the price of bitcoin fluctuates uh if the price rises then uh and, and hits a certain threshold that will then will release a certain amount of bitcoin to uh, either an unencumbered, unchained vault, or to any you know wallet address that um, a a client you know provides to us. But then on the, the reverse side, if the price drops, uh, there's certain uh, collateral maintenance requirements. So um, say the, the you know a loan starts out with a ten thousand dollar loan and twenty thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin. If the price of Bitcoin drops twenty five percent, such the collateral's fifteenth that worth fifteen thousand, then we issue a collateral maintenance call. And individuals will have to post additional Bitcoin to um, to allow that loan to remain outstanding. If they don't in a a certain period of time, which in our case is two days, uh, expires, then we will um, partially liquidate collateral to to get it back to the threshold that it needs to be. Um, But, you know, it's a very transparent process and there are risks involved Um, there, you know. Um, With extreme volatility, you know, we can be placed in a position where we have to liquidate collateral, Uh, but really it is tailored for people to to use conservatively, um, to to access dollars, preserve their Bitcoin, um, and kind of, you know, the the trade off of that is, is the interest cost. But, uh, but yeah, we, we also, in terms of the custody model, we do offer two, two options. So if, uh, and the one that we prefer our clients to use for those that are comfortable with self-custody, which many of our clients are, uh, we offer an arrangement where um, it's a two or three multi-sig vault where the Bitcoin is held, collateral is never rehypothecated. Um, and uh, the client actually gets to hold one of the keys. So not only can they validate on chain that there's Bitcoin in the address, but they can also validate that it is unique to them or at least one of their keys is there. Um, Unchained controls the second key, and then we have a third party partner control the third key. So, um, you know, we we ultimately are in control through our third party, uh, but we really take um, in, in many ways throughout everything that we do, measures to um, engineer around edge cases and reduce Unchained or minimize Unchained as a single point of failure as it relates to our interactions with clients.
0: Yeah, and so how do you, how does Unchained you know, uh, perform this basically, you know, how do you, how does Unchain make money in offering these loans? Like how do they, how do they provide this service?
1: So, um, you know, our, our loans bear interest, you know, again, and I would say somebody has the ability to go get a traditional, traditional fiat mortgage at, you know, three or 4%. Um, they should do that over taking an Unchain loan. Um, our, our capital is, is provided by, you know, kind of private capital providers. So, um, we, we charge interest of 10 to 14%. So we make, we, you know, in terms of the loans, we make interest or, you know, we earn principally through two ways, origination fees, which generally range from 0.5% um, to 1% of a loan balance, as well as servicing fees, and and then the, ultimately the interest on the loans.
0: Right, so you, you let's say you guys charge 1% a month on, on a loan, something. Oh.
1: No, so uh, a loan, so our our interest rates, they vary depending on the duration of the loan, but uh, our shortest duration loan, now uh, there are no prepayment penalties, but the the shortest duration loan we issue is three months um, and the longest duration loan we issue is three years. That can always be exceptions, Uh, but the interest rates on those vary from approximately 10% to 14%.
0: Right. And so with that collateral, you get the capital from elsewhere and that's what you that's the cash basically that you give to clients
1: yeah yeah and then they they fund that you know 10 to 14 percent interest in in dollars
0: yeah um all right i'll if you wanted to to touch on caravan because i got a bunch of other stuff for you but i'll let you break into that for a sec if you'd like
1: yeah i did i did want to come back to caravan i I can't believe i forgot about it because caravan probably has been our single largest investment over the last say six to nine months. Um, and, you know, care, you know, one is, as a firm, we, we recognize that there are privacy trade-offs to working with a company like Unchained. I think something else that you, you brought up um, is that, you know, people are just starting to use and interact with multi-sig at least at an individual level. I think, you know, uh, any institution that's providing custody on behalf of, of clients, um, in, a, in a third party sense, you know, those institutions all generally use multi sig But in, in terms of an individual application, um, you know, realistically up until the last 12, 18 months, many individuals weren't. So we're, we really are in this phase of, you know, educating um, people on, you know, better ways to secure their Bitcoin, which I think is, that, you know, especially as the price of Bitcoin increases over time and it becomes a more material, material percentage of people as well. The idea of holding a lot of Bitcoin on a single key becomes, you know, uh, scarier or presents greater risk. And and while we're in that process, kind of thinking about the problem from the perspective that, you know, many people don't yet know how multisig works. Um, And and other people um, reasonably have concerns on on the privacy side that we want, you know, through our platform, be able to provide multisig to everybody. Um, So whether somebody is comfortable using a third party like Unchained or um, just using uh, an open source application, we want that bar to be lower or lowered such that everyone can access that. We think it's a really important part to kind of not not the long term viability of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is viable regardless, but it will give more people confidence the more secure they are that, that their Bitcoin isn't at risk or at risk of being hacked. And so, you know, kind of caravan's a tool that that allows people to interact with multi-sig that don't necessarily want to work with a third party. Um, again, the benefits of Unchained is that you know you, our, our clients can can control two out of three keys. So they're sovereign over their private keys and they can move their Bitcoin without any any help from Unchained. And Carabin, you know, for for them provides an important tool. For people that that don't interact with Unchained, uh, people can just use Caravan, but for people that use Unchained, Caravan represents a way that if they ever want to spend money without you know, accessing Unchained's private application or accessing anybody you know, within Unchained or requiring any help, they can go completely external to us to, to be able to facilitate that. So that, 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 that you know, kind of has two-sided functions. But then in addition to that, over time, um, as, as we're already seeing it, Caravan's a tool to help us accelerate development within our private application. Um, So that, you know, we want to get to a point where we're, you know, using the exact same libraries and caravan within our private application. Um, And, you know, we also want it to be a tool to, um, for other developers in the community, as well as other companies to be able to leverage, but also to help drive multi-sig standards. I think that if there is a, um, if there is, you know, I don't want to say a risk to multi-sig, but I think one of the, one of the drawbacks of multi-sig is that, you know, across different hardware providers, um, and, and even pr- across different companies, um, multi-stake is still emerging in terms of its individual or client-facing application. And um, in order for us to achieve the, the level of security that we can through multi-stake, developing better standards is an important part of that. And so um, kind of in, in our world, Caravan, while people can kind of look at it and say, well, you know, how does, how does um, Unchain make money off of Caravan? Realistically, it's a multifaceted asset for us. It's the asset on the private application. It's an asset for our clients within our private application. It's an asset for people that don't want to interact with a third party. Um, And and it's also a development tool. So we have a test suite that other developers, whether they are hardware wallet um, manufacturers, come in and use and see hey does my is my wallet is my wallet able to sign a multi-sig address through a browser so um it it really is kind of a a long-term investment and we continue to advance it we're going to be pushing a big release to that um next week we were planning to do it this week but that'll come next week and there'll be a a lot more functionality so caravan really is a critical piece to the story of what we're building at unchained because the foundation is all built around multi-sig
0: yeah, that's awesome, man. How many people do you guys have roughly at Unchained?
1: Um, roughly about 18. Um, I I would have a better count, but, you know, we haven't been, you know, at the office for the right. last eight weeks. Right. And, uh, but I think we're still at 18, maybe
0: 19. Yeah. Um, I know part of your background, at, at least, you know, you come from the traditional world. You were at Heyman Capital, you know, Kyle Bass is a pretty well-known uh, figure, What do he and, you know, potentially other former colleagues think about the work you're doing now and and, and maybe Bitcoin generally? Are they supportive, intrigued, dismissive? I would say that it's hard
1: to put a number on it, but I I would say um, 80 percent intrigued, 20 percent dismissive. Um, And that, you know. You know specifically, you know, you know, I've had a number of conversations with Kyle on Bitcoin. I think he's, you know, I, I, I am not yet sure whether or not he has any exposure to it, but um, I think you know he, you know, he is someone who I, I would say is pretty um, reflective of a of a number of people that you know kind of look and operate in that world that is intrigued, like understanding that there is value in, you know. You know, if Bitcoin were really, you know, I think this is the primary question that most people have, and that you know so certain people struggle with. If Bitcoin really has achieved finite scarcity, that that is a very valuable um, that is a very valuable thing. Um, and then I think where um, you know some of that intrigue then kind of not necessarily gets shut down, but I think where there's a pause most frequently is the the regulatory
2: environment.
1: You know, I think there's a, a broad concern around. Tr- you know the, the traditional investment community there's a, there's, a, there's a view that you know, if Bitcoin is as successful as it can be that you know the Fed or the treasury or the government military, whoever it may be that they'll just shut it down. And, uh, and you know in my conversations with those type of people and I, I really I wrote um, one of my articles on Bitcoin cannot be banned kind of really thinking about that audience of people that kind of has that view that, to explain to them why, um why it's it, it's not necessarily irrational to or, or illogical to think about but when you when you parse through that type of thought process you you quickly recognize that um the the asymmetry it's like you know bitcoin only gets banned if or i don't think it can be banned but uh, the attempts only you know materially start if bitcoin is you know probably an order of magnitude more valuable um and you know the more that you understand the fundamentals about Bitcoin, the more you understand why, even if they attempted to ban it, uh, it wouldn't work. But even then, if you came back and said, okay, well, would I rather have, if I look at this and I believe that it's viable, that there's a, that, you know, having a currency that, with a fixed supply is va- of value, um, and that uh, a Western government isn't going to really try to crack down on it until it's very apparent that it's a problem for their monopoly over money. Would you rather in a you know? Would you rather be exposed to that asymmetry if you had some baseline of knowledge, and or would you rather be in a position to not have the, any of that asset that increased by an order of magnitude for the fear that you know your ability to use it may you know may be impaired? And so in my world, it's I'd you know ten times out of ten I'd rather be the person having that problem than not having the thing that the government wants to restrict.
0: For sure. And my, one of my questions with these guys, and obviously they're, they're incredibly bright and informed and experienced. Um, but one of the things that I bump up against is that if you know, Bitcoin is, for whatever reason, not that interesting to you, or maybe you haven't really just dug your teeth into it yet, when you look out on the, the world today, especially in light of the last couple months, but certainly you know, over the last number of years, and you see the problems you see the cracks emerging you see the inherent unsustainability of it all what do these people uh think is the end game if not um something like bitcoin which represents you know effectively a, an alternative system what what do they think is going to transpire because a lot of them are are rightfully in my opinion bearish on on what's going on and 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 they're accurately articulating the problems, but what do they see in terms of a solution, if not Bitcoin?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think that there's probably two, two different views that I've seen formed. Um, and it, and one is, you know, people increasingly recognizing that, you know, kind of a combination of two two thought processes. None of this makes sense. And this all ends badly. And then they don't carry that out to the to the logical conclusion. And I think in 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 certain ways it's because um, it's uncomfortable to think about that. Like, you know, people because you know the Fed is the Fed and the Treasury is the Treasury and the United States is the United States, they they can't really even take themselves to go through that thought process to say, could the dollar ever not be the dollar? and that rather than go down that, you know, kind of path, you know, kind of logically or kind of consistently, it just kind of shuts down at that point. They, they recognize that this doesn't work or that something's wrong and that something's going to end badly, but it never extends to a world where the dollar isn't the predominant currency in the world because that just is difficult to imagine or uncomfortable to think about. I think that the other view is, you know, someone who recognizes that and then logically says, you know, we'll probably go back to a gold standard, you know, rather than then go to Bitcoin. And mm-hmm. and I have I've got I have two problems with that, which is, you know, if it ever becomes apparent that there's a problem with fiat money, which again, it's like people look at the dollar and they look at Venezuela and they don't they they view them as two entirely separate animals when the actual currency and what underpins the currency is identical. You know, yes, there's a different central bank and a different government, but at a root level, what underpins the currency, the operation in which it's created is identical to Venezuela. And it's just, they are just one person away. You know, people, you know, um, Milton Friedman was someone who, you know, get, gets a lot of praise, but then he was one of the original monetarists and said, okay, if we just put a little bit of money supply in, you know, this will be good. Um, Well, then somebody comes along and puts in, you know, 1.8 trillion and then 600 billion, and then, you know, another 1.8 trillion. And then this time, just in the last six weeks, 2.4 trillion. So it's like the, the actual operation is the same, but there's a disconnect between recognizing that Venezuela over here and what happened to their currency as if it can't happen to the dollar. Um, and so, you know, I think that, you know, if you take Venezuela as an example, you know, if you ever get to a point where fiat currency is readily apparent that th- that it doesn't have value, you can't magically then take gold and say, okay, the, the this bar of gold is now, you know what, guys, we're going to set it at $8,000 an ounce, because, you know, that's the current, what it's currently trading at, or whatever it is, like, assuming that, that, the, that the dollar falls apart um because everyone looks at that and says wait what changed about the operation of creating dollars that i now am suddenly going to trust that it's just it's just not a logical uh, place to end up it's that if if the problem becomes apparent the cat will be you know too far out of the bag to put it put it back in and i think at this point it probably isn't already is and people just haven't figured it out um and then and then the other thing i have the other problem that i have with uh, that that gold story is that where we got today is really, a, like in my view, the a manifestation of gold's failure as a monetary medium. Like we already had gold, and then we got to this point, and we got to this point because you know gold was you know you know in order to uh, you, know, you know maybe one way to think about it is you know in order to commercialize gold or to make it form to the economy that was emerging around it, the technological solution to that was put gold in vaults and create you know, uh, banknotes and ultimately reserve notes or dollars. Um, and and, and when, you, when you start to understand Bitcoin, then you start to understand that it's, it's perfected the scarcity of gold and it's essentially kind of combined all of the benefits of the digital dollar with all the benefits of a physical scarcity of gold into one, you know, it's not digital gold, it's the digital dollar and physical gold combined. And so when I think about Bitcoin vis-a-vis gold, you know, I really think about it. And again, it's easy for, for someone like myself who's been sitting and staring at the problem, you know, for three years, three four years uninterrupted. Um, but that, you know, in my view, Bitcoin is an order of magnitude better than gold. That's why, you know, its adoption rate relative to gold is, you know, is of civil, you know similar degrees. Um, so I think that. You know, but I also recognize. And I think this is where, you know, many traditional institutional investors um, fall down and very reasonably is that, you know, like I kind of think about, you know, a metaphor or analogy to like somebody staring at a blank canvas and it's completely unintuitive. And then something just clicks for people. And again, it's different for every person uh, or maybe not different for every person, but it can take many different variants that suddenly what you were, you were staring at this, you know, knowing that you needed to understand it, but it just, you know, it just didn't make sense. And then something happens and it's likely some experience or some idea that connects. And then it's a masterpiece. It's like the Sistine chapel. You just see it. It was always there, but you couldn't see it because it wasn't intuitive. But then once you see it, you can't unsee it. Um, And, and so, you know, in many ways, um, and I'm working on a piece now that's just on common sense and, you know, kind of, you know, experience being greater than reason that, you know, you, you like it. Bitcoin's almost a problem you can't think about harder. It just has to make sense someday. And that probably only happens because you read something that made you think about something that you wouldn't have otherwise thought about, or you see something like, you know, the Fed create $2.4 trillion, and you're like, okay, I get it. You know, $21 million, 2.4 trillion, you know, so, um, it's like, I try not to, um, you know, beat up people too much that, that don't see it. Cause I know that I was there myself. I spent two years looking at Bitcoin before it clicked for me.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's very much like that. It's like a Eureka moment. And then after that, you know, there's still a lot of learning to be done, but the more learning you do, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm oftentimes I just think to myself, it's so obvious how is this not like clear and obvious to everybody? Um, But one of the things, you know, you mentioned, and I've been engaging the gold bugs a little bit more lately because talk talk about obvious. There seems to be a weird dissonance where the gold bugs don't seem to realize that the reason why we're in this mess is because of the deficiencies of, of gold's properties as money in the first place. And that cash was gold scaling solution. And it's, it's inexorably linked to, a a trusted, a trusted scaling solution is necessary for gold to scale. And it will always be that way, especially in the modern world and modern commerce. And there's just no way of avoiding the pitfalls that we've, you know, there's so many examples of through history and the largest of which we're probably living through right now. And just the, the dissonance, the hubris, whatever you want to call it, to not realize that is one of those things that I just can't it's hard, like, I don't understand why they can't see that. Yeah,
1: you know, I, I you know, my my view of that, because I, I think about that as well. And just as people who think that the fiat system is operating and that it works and we can do, you know, MMT, which is a made-up thing and, you know, all reality can, you know, not apply, um, that, you know, Similar pitfalls exist for for people that that, that are interested in gold, and that um, you know that's anchored in time. You know, gold's been around for 2,000 years, uh, or more than that. You know, like for the existence of the world, but in terms of in terms of its monetization. And so, um, I think that that anchoring in time, um, you know, they they basically saw that you know what happened, you know, in 1933 and 34 and 1971 all of that didn't make sense, and they were right, right? And uh, if if not for Bitcoin, we would go back to that world. But they also haven't spent time to independently really understand Bitcoin, in most cases. I mean, certainly, you know, many of them have, and there, there is a crossover, so it's not suggesting like there's a fine line, but then I think in the ones that, that continue to fail to see it, they, you know, they, they kind of anchor to this idea of, well, there's this mining process that constantly has to go. And once you get a bar of gold out of the ground, that, you know, it's good. Um, and, and and we don't have that ongoing maintenance cost. And it's like, well, um, you do have ongoing maintenance costs. You've got, you know, higher costs of facilities and vaults. And, uh, you know, you are constantly going and getting more, um, more gold out of the ground, uh, which is a cost to the existing gold that's in place, even if it's, you know, one and a half to 2% a year. And what it will turn out to be is that the cost to secure the Bitcoin network you know, will be less than 1%. Uh, even when you get to a set steady state, And we're just talking about transaction fees. It's just what that we've seen over time, the you know, mining revenue share in terms of the overall Bitcoin economic system continues to go down and down, you know, on a percentage basis. And so I think we'll ultimately come around to that idea, but I do think that, um, you know, it starts at the idea because it is bitcoin is so hard to to understand and so much of what somebody who's spent you know years decades like understanding the issues in the fiat system and knowing that the solution was gold but that's a very difficult um thing to tell them that you know yes you were right that you know what happened you know was a problem and that gold was the better solution then but now there is this thing that's perfected on all the things that gold did. Um,
0: yeah. And
1: you need yeah. to understand how and why that is in order to then, you know, divorce from the idea that that, that we'll just go back to gold. But until you see kind of how and why Bitcoin, you know, beats gold by an order of magnitude, you just you just can't get there. And, for, and me, myself, I was somebody and I had the fortune of, you know, when I met SAFE, I was actually diligence at a gold company. And, um, And and the guys who run it are incredibly knowledgeable, both about gold and Bitcoin um, and and people that I learned a lot from, but also through SAFE, that's really when I went through the process of learning monetary economics. And I was somebody who looked at gold, didn't understand it, thought it was, you know, someone who would have referred to gold as a barbaric relic. You know, if I ever need gold, I'd rather have guns and cows. Um, And then I figured out that I was like, no, well, the reason why gold or more kind of generally money exists is to... Uh, allow civilization to, to, to coordinate peacefully. And that if we do have a good form of money, then we won't need the guns type of an idea. Um, and so I was someone that latched on to gold and I started buying some gold because I hadn't yet got Bitcoin. And then I was, I was stuck in this world where I kind of understood Bitcoin, but I understood gold and I was seeing like how, you know, kind of was there some way that, gold you know, Bitcoin would sit on top of gold and be like the digital piece of it. And then it just clicked for me one day where I was like, no, it's bitcoin has that same inherent scarcity it doesn't need gold um and and so i kind of you know went from zero to gold to bitcoin in you know in 60 seconds you know where mm-hmm. there was practically like probably like you know three months or six months where i was hung up on gold but uh, um, you know i think it's just if, if you if you started from scratch you probably more logically go that path um but if you've been anchored to gold for years you know it you know it's a similar challenge than if you're you know wed to the fiat system and think that it's you know smooth sailing and well functioning
0: yeah i i totally agree and you know on that point man monetary history and understanding um the nature complexity and implications of money is i just find once you realize what it represents it's such a compelling kind of field or subject matter for for study because it's it it innervates everything i mean it, it literally is the determining factor on the type of world that we uh, that we live in collectively and um it's such a rich pursuit and i think you know the gold bugs um I think they they've kind of truncated that that understanding, and they've kind of taken a, a sliver of it and focused on that, and and left out the the larger picture. But on the flip side, I can almost you know I can relate, or I I'm a little bit more um, gentle on them sometimes because, and I think Safe's book really brought this home for a lot of people: the idea of absolute scarcity, um, and it, it it is a bit of a chasm to cross for people to to realize that one that's something that can even exist uh, and it can exist in the digital world i mean so many people are just completely averse to the 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 notion that something can be scarce in in the digital world you know the gold bugs always refer to the fact that um you know gold is corporeal you can feel it you can touch it it's there it's you know not going anywhere and to to cross that uh, bridge to realizing that scarcity has been established in the digital realm, digital digital realm, it's it will likely continue to persist, and that that's the nature of that scarcity is absolute. You know, I can I can get that that's a, a big pill to swallow and takes a bit of time to to digest.
1: Yeah, and I think that there is that you know because th- th- there's always examples though where like I think people look at Bitcoin and.
0: Yeah, you know,
1: because you know, my, in my own personal experience, figuring out how, um, you know, and again, there's no like, I couldn't explain it in one sentence how Bitcoin, you know, attra- achieves finite scarcity. But through that process of like figuring out, you know, how all the nodes in the network validate transactions, how blocks are constructed and, and joined together or, or sequenced together, how other, you know, kind of miners, you know, validate. Um, and that whole process, like, down to, you know, kind of, like, literally block construction and nonsense, like, that was where, like, my mind really just, like, you know, it was where my mind blew, you know, or my mind was blown <laughs> um, where I was like, holy shit, like, I get it, like, that's crazy, um, but, you know, I think that from, from the outside looking in without having that, you know, kind of knowledge base, that there's this idea that you have this, you know, network running, and that, just like any data center like a data center could go down and be disrupted uh, and so they, they they think of it as something that's kind of like constantly on a loop and anything that's constantly on a loop can be shut down um, versus a bar of gold that there's permanence to it you know where you know it's static in the world um, it doesn't mean that its utility is but that it that it still exists there as an object and so um, you know, the more that they understand about, you know, not only how decentralized Bitcoin is today, but then also just that it, you know, by its very nature becomes, you know, as Bitcoin expands by an order of magnitude, whether it's adoption or value or however you want to look at it, there's more nodes in the network. It's like basically becoming more and more redundant constantly that, that there really is permanence to that uh, and that it's not just, you know, a, a you know, server farm that could go down somewhere. Um, or they look at keys and they say, oh, well, you know, keys can be lost. It's like just something digital, this gold bar, like you could, um, you know, you can't destroy it. But, you know, they're they're looking in a world where the whole gold monetary system already evolved, you know, and that's one of the other things that people struggle with with Bitcoin. It's like, I see Bitcoin. I'm like, get it. It's going to be perfectly stable in about 10 years. Uh, but, about six people six six billion people between now and then need to adopt it before that's going to happen or maybe two billion or three billion Um, but i already see that end game and so you know i understand the volatility and why it is and how to manage it Um, but in that world there's so many things that haven't been built in bitcoin that like once bitcoin is worth a trillion dollars in total we're going to have a lot more capital and a lot more companies building things for bitcoin Um, and if we take gold we go back to the role that at some point there was a piece of ore in the ground. There were no coins. There were no well-manufactured coins. There were no banks that had bank vaults. That all of those things evolved as people recognized the value of gold and figured out how to optimize um, it as money. Like They had to take the, the ore and convert it into a monetary medium. And that's the same thing in Bitcoin. Like think of Bitcoin as the ore. And now we're building the monetary system on top of it, or at least the rails to be able to move it around and to transact in it. Um, And so, you know, I think it's, it's some kind of like, I don't want to say it's not fair. It's unrealistic to not, to not think that way about Bitcoin, to not say, okay, you know, if I give you that there's digital scarcity here, and that that's actually been achieved, regardless of how mind blowing that is, it still can't be transacted easily, or there's, you know, 10 minute transactions. It's like, have a little imagination, you know, the hard problem was solved. Now we have to go commercialize it. Like what other technology has not gone from uh, clunky to, you know, seamless and ubiquitous. Um, and, and, you know, one, one example that I use for people that are in the gold world, it's like, you know, they, they, they view like Bitcoin keys, uh, you know, that can be lost. Like, like, you know, early in the days where people had gold, there were gold, you know, ships that sunk that had gold on it. And, you're never getting that gold back you know so like yes the gold exists in in, in the world but you don't have access to it and it's no longer a utility to you it's like if my bitcoin key gets lost there's still bitcoin in the world but i just can't get access to it it's like a gold bar that's soaked to the depths of you know sunk to the depths of the ocean it's no different and what we're in the process of doing now is especially through multi-sig in and, and various different ways and again this is a this is a you know ruthless trial and error and people you know, like we go from the world of mountain Gox and people quote lost their Bitcoin to a world where people then figure out, oh, we need to be self custodying our Bitcoin. So they move to single keys. And then, and then people say, oh shit, my Bitcoin's worth a lot more. Uh, I, there's some risks related to these single keys. I need to start, you know, storing them in multi seconds. So we're really in this stage onboarding people into Bitcoin and figuring out how to secure it so that it does have that permanence. But those are all just in, in the natural progression of the evolution. So
0: hundred percent. And that, you know, the fact that it can be lost is more of a feature, not a bug, just in that it makes it way easier. It makes it way less confiscatable, you know, gold, even if it's not, you know, centrally stored, you know, for, for security reasons, let's say it's just in your home or whatever. I mean, if somebody wants to run up on you, I mean, it's just a matter of force uh, versus, you know, Bitcoin has a, a far deeper uh, security model because of that reason yes it's a double-edged sword it does mean it can be your access to it can be lost but it dramatically increases your ability to defend and that's a whole part of the the narrative around it
1: yeah <laughs> and i think that's the that's also an idea that that people probably don't appreciate it's the idea that if not for that you know permanence of loss we wouldn't have digital scarcity um that you know, you know again the whole piece of value of digital scarcity is I can send some, I can send Bitcoin to somebody else. And there, and and once it's gone and once the network confirms that there's no taking it back, or if I have a Bitcoin stored on a key and that, that key is lost. Now somebody may find the key in the future and be able to access it, but if it's destroyed um, and it doesn't literally exist anywhere in the world, no, no one's getting that Bitcoin. Um, But that, that a feature, not a bug, and that we wouldn't have digital scarcity if not for that. That underpins the idea of digital scarcity, um, that you can't, you know, recover, you know, an email from a server that's, you know, on, you know, Gmail server. It's just the Bitcoin, you know, only exists and and, and it's controlled by single keys. And if those keys do, are not held, nobody in the world can get it. And if you didn't previously make a copy, you know, that that that's on you, not on the network. The the network will get stronger because it learns from those, you know, situations. Um, You know, people learn from Algox. They don't hold their, you know, people still do hold Bitcoin on, you know, Coinbase to the world, um, which may be good for, you know, someone that's just starting out, but, but people learn from each, you know, each mistake, you know, Bitcoin's a living, breathing organism. um, And, you know, you know, in trial and error and just in time and experience, we, you know, we figure out how to optimize for, um, issues that, you know, kind of caused problems, you know, three, four or five, six years ago.
0: Yeah. This is the last point about gold. And it's I'm going to use it as a segue into kind of how things look in a Bitcoin denominated world. But, it, you know, it is something that a lot of gold bugs and even kind of, you know, well-known macro uh, guys say a lot. And the gold bugs will say, you know, um, well, on the one hand, gold is valuable because it's scarce. On the other hand, but we don't want we don't want absolute scarcity because that little bit of supply elasticities allows us to, you know, normalize prices. And, um, is it's, it's a, it's a weird argument that doesn't, you know, really, um, flow for me, but I was wondering if you could touch on, you know, and even if you don't want to touch on that argument, but just looking at what prices look like in a world where the supply side is inelastic and obviously all, all changes in demand have to be reflected in price. And, uh, you know, what kind of, how that affects the functioning of things in a world, if that were the standard, you know, because, and, and, you know, a lot of the macro guys will say Bitcoin can't be currency because it's inelastic and, you know, it's too volatile. Um, and I think those, those arguments probably haven't been thought through too well, but I'd love to get your take on them.
1: Yeah. So I think that at least, on, I mean, I don't know the, the idea that, um, because if you argue that you know a small amount of inflation is good, um, it's like what is what is the actual principle that you are on, arguing on? And you you're basically making a, a you're taking a position that is some source, the person who's mining the gold or creating the money, um, has a role to play in setting prices in real economic you know kind of in terms of the real economy and real economic activity and that once you figure out that you know the role of money it's you know kind of like the concept of price is something you know i think you brought it up before and i think you know the whole idea of money and the the concept of how price evolved you know hayek talks about it as you know you know not of deliberate design but that you know if it were that it would be viewed as you know, one of the greatest achievements of the human mind ever invented. Um, But that, but that, you know, it wasn't, you know, derived through deliberate design or conscious thought. And so therefore, you know, it's something that's so impactful, but that no one really, it's not taught in school, you know, it's just kind of taken for granted. It's there. I think in the future that will change once we go through this period. But once, once you get to the point where you understand, because I think it's the most important piece of Austrian economics or, or really, any economics is is the you know the role of money and the function of price, um, and the and the pricing mechanism, and that you know money is there to intermediate other other exchanges. You know, it basically says you know there's two exchanges. I you know bought you know produced this. I sold it for Y money, and then I needed to buy something else, and I you know bought that for Z amount of money. In both of those, I'm pricing both the money and the good. Um, but the real thing that money allows us to do is that wouldn't be possible if there wasn't, you know, X and Y and Z and, you know, A, B, C, D, e and F goods to, to trade for that money. And so um, really what we're learning through price and the, and the really valuable piece of information is the relative value of all other goods. It's not the amount of money that is meaningful, and it's not the the value necessarily of money that that we want to know. We want to learn how many cars does it take to, to build a house. You know, how many apples do I need to sell to buy a car? Um, and and that money being the intermediary, all that all that happens if some outside force is creating money, is is introducing a variable that is unnecessary to that equation. Um, and so. Um, you know, if you're, if you're taking the position that a small amount of inflation is good to quote normalize um, pricing, it, I think it fails to understand what price actually is. There is no price, right? There's prices ever changing. It's really exchange ratios between hundreds of millions of different goods, you know, buying between billions of people in different locations that have different preferences. So when when price is quote changing, it's because people are are through money are expressing you know what they value. Any outside manipulation just comes to distort that that inherent level of activity. Um, and then on the side of kind of low levels of inflation, it's like, well, how do you choose what the right amount is? You know, like why not if if one point five percent is good, why not two? You're not really making a fundamental argument. You're just of creating an explanation for the way things are, in, in, in my view. And then, really, for those people that think that Bitcoin is too volatile uh, to be a currency, I think, again, that's one of those places where, um, you know, I don't want to be insulting, but, you know, it's, it's, again, you know, a level of, you know, lacking imagination to say, okay, like, forget that Bitcoin is volatile. Determine, in your own view, whether you think finite scarcity has been achieved in Bitcoin develop a view as to whether you think it's uh, technically, practically, socially possible that there are only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoin. And if you can get there, then one, you're not going to have the view that Bitcoin's too volatile. But even if you do, you'll recognize the value in it. And you'll say, okay, if I, if I recognize that a small number of people have figured out that this secret, maybe the world's greatest secret, that there's this resource that's finitely scarce and you can you know, take that, property of scarcity and transmitted over the internet um, that they will then see, okay, there's only 2% of people that have this thing and there's 98% of people that that don't. And that, you know, the way that people figure out about Bitcoin is when it's price starts to rise uh, because, because the people that have figured it out at a fundamental level are accumulating it and more and more people are constantly doing that because knowledge is distributing over time and exponentially that you, if you have a fixed supply, and there's an order of magnitude of adoption, which naturally there will be if only two percent of people have it, and you understand why that you know, nature of scarcity is valuable, that you can't have anything but volatility. Like volatility is price discovery. If if you know two percent of people were valuing something one day, and then you know the next you know over a, a year, twenty percent of people are valuing it. Well, the, the, the new people may be you know scribing different value to the old people they may have different amounts of wealth um and so the price of bitcoin has to readjust it can't just naturally get on a fine line um you know where where everyone suddenly agrees um but what happens over time is there's an adoption wave bitcoin rises by order or uh, by an order of orders of magnitude people, many of the people that were buying it don't yet understand it and then Many of those same people sell it, but again, if if adoption increases by an order of magnitude, if only ten percent or twenty percent of people figure it out, then your holder base is actually doubled, tripled, quadrupled. Um, so you don't need you know you know many people that got you know sucked in to actually figure it out to create you know a, a more stable base or a base at higher levels. And that's where like when I see the volatility, to me it's kind of become rhythmic, like it's explained in in, in how Bitcoin is adopted. Um, but then, but then also, you know, people that have that view that Bitcoin's too volatile, they just have to recognize, you know, economic reality. If I hold Bitcoin and I recognize that it has a fixed supply and nobody can create more of it, and it's not held by many people and more people are going to adopt it, all while I can spend my dollars that the Fed has printed 2.4, created 2.4 trillion of, and that will surely devalue. So long as I can continue to use my dollars and spend my dollars, I'm going to continue to do that. And as people, as more and more people have Bitcoin, as the as the density of the Bitcoin holding population increases, it's, you know, again, it's not going to happen all at once, but, you know, increasingly you're going to start to see people pop up. Like the first part for wanting to accept Bitcoin at a, at a shop is figuring out why you should be holding it and saving it. Um, mm-hmm. So the problem is many people want to be paid in Bitcoin. Not many people want to pay Bitcoin right because they can pay a depreciating asset and save an appreciating asset so it's like on the one hand volatility is natural on the other hand once you figure it out you you don't want to spend your bitcoin that's perfectly that's a perfectly natural and logical position to take um, kind of given the other monetary mediums that you have to your availability
0: yeah i mean i just see it as being keeping the price signal as pu- i see absolute scarcity or, or finite scarcity being a mechanism that that keeps the price signal pure and far from being uh, detrimental to m- a monetary system. That's kind of the holy grail of a money in, in a- being able to preserve a pure price signal because we see time and time again, how distortions of the price signal create a lot of different problems. Yes, in gold, it's relatively mild, but I would still say if you analyzed it closely, you'd probably be able to, uh, you know, determine or reveal that that ultimately is a, a drawback. And then, you know, as you mentioned in today's world, and this is one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, is um, what's being done to our money now? You know, people are hearing these words, trillions being thrown around, all the debt that's that uh, governments are taking on. And, you know, I think they're, they're starting to realize that okay, you know, we'll have to pay this back at some point, or, you know, how can the government afford to send us all a check? You know, these questions are starting to seep in. I don't think people appreciate how the price signal is being uh, manipulated uh, and, you know, maybe even destroyed or, you know, being, uh, a lot of the price signal is taking a lot of abuse and what that means. And one of my concerns is, um, you know, in a complex uh, economy globalized world in which we have, you already have a lot of issues uh, with the price signal based on how each central bank you know issues currency and the inflation, and then the interplay between global currencies around the world. But then, when we have this much uh, printing of money and liquidity being injected into the system and the interplay of all the debt that 's there my concern is that my question and maybe you can shed some light on this is what are the tells or things that we should be looking at um, because I think for, for the price signal to break down in a manner that dramatically disrupts trade so it kind of becomes too um, disrupted to facilitate you know um, trade that we need now I don't know if that necessarily coincides with you know currency collapse or if or if just the the kind of uh, turbulence in the price signal be- precedes that and becomes such that it just continues to disrupt trade. And, and what I'm what I'm talking about here, I guess, is you know things like food shortages and, and things of that nature that rely on that are very very important that we all rely on. Which those rely on a stable price signal to uh, to be optimized and to um, you know to provide us the things that we need. So what what's your kind of take on what's happening now and how it's distorting and the negative effects it's having on the price signal.
1: Well I so I, I think that the um, you know the, the first thing that I kind of recognize is that yeah you know, again that idea that you know if we look at the price of oil or 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 the price of gal you know the national average or the price of gasoline
0: realistically
1: you know every gas station or not every gas station but most gas stations have a different price you know for for um, gallon of gasoline. gasoline, um, and that there really is no, there is no single price of gas, there's no, there's no single price of anything, you know, banana at a store, you know, next door to me versus five miles away is going to be different, um, but that, you know, kind of the function in aggregate is allowing all those people that are, you know, directly facilitating trade to you know, manage their own supply chains and manage their own business models and their own cost structures. Um, And that, that, you know, it's not necessarily like what, you know, with the Fed creating 2.4 trillion in, in the last six weeks or six, seven weeks, it's that you have to recognize that since like that this problem goes back decades and that the, you know, it really accelerated in the financial crisis in 2008, but that, you know the the transmission of the manipulation of pricing mechanisms generally is affected through the credit system. So pe- one of the questions that many people have is like, you know, Fed created, you know, Fed quintupled the size of its balance sheet following the um, following the Great Financial Crisis, and you know, why didn't we see inflation go? You know, why do not we see prices go up five x? Um, and, and the reality is, is because the way that price is typically communicated through our, you know, fiat monetary system, through the allocation of credit, through the credit system. Um, and so, um, what the, you know, but but the consequence of that is the way that the Fed manipulates the money supply. And, and again, you can't look at it in a vacuum as just like what is the cause and effect of, you know, this 2.4 trillion is, you know, before the financial crisis. What was the consequence? of doubling the money supply over, you know, a decade or two, Um, because what happens is, you know, and and it's easy to think about in a specific example. So like what happens when the Fed manipulates the price of mortgages again, you know, during the financial crisis, we had a housing problem um, and in a housing crisis and the Fed, you know, effectively went and bought 17% of all mortgages. They bought $1.7 trillion in, in mortgage-backed securities, um, which hold the mortgages which are actually owed by you know, consumers and businesses all over all the country. Well, when you manipulate the rate of interest lower for, for housing, then the entire economic structure shifts. So um, more people and more resources within the economy are devoted to housing and construction of housing than they otherwise would have been. Well, what happens when the market figures out that 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 world was unsustainable um and this is there, there's a really dense um lecture that hayek gave called um the pretense of knowledge so i would suggest reading it it's dense you probably got to read it five times but it's idea that these 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 price levels in housing can only be sustained so long as they're manipulated and soon as soon as the you know everyone figures it out that they can't afford things at those levels then there's it's very difficult to find the equilibrium because no, you know, because, because it's been ma- manipulated for so long. Um, but it's not just, but it's not just the price. It's like thinking about, well, shit, over 10 years, a bunch of people devoted their life to you know, building houses and because there was a price set on those houses that could only be achieved if the fed had created $1.7 trillion to keep pr- home values high. And, and again, it's not just like the the nominal level of homes. It's, it's, the, the exchange ratio between a home and a car and every other good. Uh, and so when that happens, you ultimately get mass economic displacement because it's uh, it, it's manipulated the balance in an economy. It's, it's created a skills mismatch that can only exist so long as manipulation exists. Um, and manipulation can only exist for so long until everybody figures it out. And we figure it out in these periods of shock. And so what I look at in terms of And so when i think about well what is the fed doing now and what are the consequences it's well there's 75 trillion of debt in the united states before they started doing this in in terms of the banking system there was only about 1.6 trillion dollars and and if you added in the money that's held at the treasury there was about 2 trillion so there's there were 75 trillion of liabilities fixed maturity fixed liability debt now, when they increase the money supply, if, if you just look at the banking system—not money that's physical outside the banking system—and I, I don't look at that because it generally can't be used to pay mortgages and uh, to pay auto loans—it's the you know kind of the money in the banking system servicing the liabilities in the banking system—that you were in a scenario where the, the the amount of debt outstripped the amount of dollars 30, still you know thirty to forty to one. Uh, so when the Fed creates two point four trillion dollars. There's still way too much debt that can't be repaid, and the people, you know, and the way that they interact with with each other, you know, even you know myself or yourself, we have deposits at banks, and those deposits are credit ultimately. Um, And but but then there's credit cards and there's home loans. So realistically, everybody owes so many dollars, and on a relative basis, still very few exist. That that's what's driving what the Fed's doing. What it's essentially doing is attempting to, and it is identical to what they did in the, in the great financial crisis, they were attempting to prevent the collapse of the credit system. Uh, the only way they can prevent, and, 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 the, and the only way they can do that is by manipulating the money supply. Too much debt, you need more dollars to be able to service those debts. Well, what happens? The, the sectors of the economy that are more heavily dependent on credit ultimately have their their, their prices more manipulated than, than other areas of, of the economy. And so I expect the exact same thing to happen here. What they're doing is they're trying to, to maintain the size of the credit system. Uh, because if the credit system starts to contract, which it's not doing yet, but if it did, then it would just feed on itself. It's, it's so levered that you know each default would just be like dominoes fall. Um, and, it, and it's very hard to, to course correct. And so they're putting all these dollars in the system and what will happen is we'll continue to put dollars in the system until they stabilize that credit system. And then the credit system will start to expand and then the effects of the monetary debasement will be felt over time, rather all rather than all at once. There will come a day where everyone will feel it suddenly. Like the, like I do have a view, and I you know it's not a dystopian view, and I'm not draconian. It's just I'm um, you know living in reality that you know if you increase the, the supply of money by you know two x three x four x five x six x seven x you know today we're at you know seven x what it was in 2007 that there will become a time where nobody values dollars because they've just become so abundant, but but that won't happen realistically until either one of two things happen. And they probably happen at the same time. Supply chains start to get disrupted significantly. So, you know, people think about hyperinflation and they just think about the money side of it. It's really that the the price signals have gotten so distorted and the co- the, the credit system has stopped working such that you can't get the goods that you actually need. So hyperinflation is really a combination of, you know, things becoming real things that you need becoming scarce because supply chains are disrupted. And Venezuela is a perfect example. While money is becoming more and more abundant money is losing its actual scarcity because goods are becoming you know, uh, more scarce. Uh, and so the whole money only works in a world where, where money is scarce relative to all other goods. But if goods start to become scarce, then, and, and there's more and more money then that equation flips. Um, and so, you know, my, the, my markers are either massive unemployment and extended unemployment, which I think is a serious risk right now, or, you know, kind of, and that, that also is a function of like, when you have mass unemployment, then you don't have those people producing those tasks that, um, created the goods on the shelf. So it's all, you know, an interrelated dynamic system, but, you know, I don't necessarily expect it in this cycle, though it is possible, um, but really kind of looking at the signals of what is the credit market doing, because that's really what the Fed is targeting when they are recklessly making, you know, 300, 400 billion dollars a week or 2.4 trillion over six weeks.
0: Yeah, I, I've heard you touch on this before, you know, because we, we often ask ourselves or each other in this uh, Bitcoin space, you know, wh- what's driving uh, fiat currency to, to have any value you know what's what's propping it up effectively and you usually the the reason given is well legal tender laws people are you know by force quote-unquote required to use it in the payment of taxes and and that kind of thing and of course there's you know the coercion that goes on around the world the petrodollar being an example where you know the might of uh, US military in that case can go around and say price oil in our currency because you know basically they go around trying to drum up artificial demand uh, for the currency. And those are kind of the more obvious ones. But I've heard you articulate that this massive debt machine that that's, uh, you know, kind of rolling along um, aside us is is also requires also generates a lot of demand for for the money. And that kind of allows it to persist maybe longer than you might think. And I think that's pretty much what you just touched on there. Um, And I think we're all kind of wondering at what point that breaks down. And as you said, you know, it'll create those increasing disruptions in the function of money as it relates to pricing goods and services in a supply chain. And there'll be a breaking point at some point there. And, you know, it'll probably be a domino sort of effect from there. Am I understanding that correctly?
1: Yeah. And so I think it happens, you know, and I think you cannot uh divorce this discussion from Bitcoin because it's a dynamic equation. Like when I talk about the world or the U S financial system being highly levered, it is an aggregate, but certain people aren't. And, you know, I think for those people that say, you know, the government gives money its value or, you know, they, they can create demand for dollars, right. They can tell me I have to pay my taxes in dollars, but they can't make me demand dollars. If I'm, you know, 60 years old and I've got a bunch of Bitcoin saved and, you know, I'm not earning, like I'm only paying taxes as so long as I'm earning. But if I'm not earning, you know, if I, if I, if I just decide I'm not going to earn, then I don't have to demand
2: taxes for dollars.
1: No one can, you know, the, the, the government and specifically the central bank, it can only dictate the supply of the currency. Like it, it should be very intuitive to somebody that uh, like you can't dictate to me what I, what value I put on a dollar. I literally go out in the world and price my dollars every single day. I decide to buy certain goods over others. Um, and I, you know, des- decide not to buy certain goods because they're priced certain ways. And so when people get, you know, kind of lost in the weeds and say, oh, well, you know, the petrodollar and they, you know, the government made them do that. They made them or they, they reached an agreement. You know, I don't know if there was a gun to a sheik's head, but um, they made an agreement to do that, but they still didn't dictate the price of oil in dollars right? They didn't still, they still didn't say, okay, you know, the, 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 you know, the dollar price of oil, it needs to be fixed at at $50. Like we see what the market's done to oil, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously there's some technical things, but yeah, oil and the dollar value of oil are, are, are subject to supply and demand economics, just like anything else. And so I think that, you know, as it relates to like really that event of like when people stop valuing the dollar, it's, it's when sufficient people get over to Bitcoin such that uh, there's a universe of people that no longer need dollars in, in the same meaningful way that they did before. Yeah. You know, again, only 2% of people have Bitcoin today. And you know, if you're just thinking about the United States, like say and that that number is probably a little bit higher in the United States, but in terms of any material exposure to Bitcoin, it's probably not more than 2%. Uh, you still need dollars. You know, like even if you don't have dollar denominated debts, you still need dollars to go buy the you know goods and services that you need. Once you start saving in Bitcoin, the, the Bitcoin world is, is, is just very naturally less like it's still wed to the dollar. Like people that are speculating in Bitcoin still have dollars; they still need dollars. So it, you know it's not divorced from that. But the more people that come into that orbit, and the greater the density of people that have Bitcoin, the less people actually will need to interact with dollars. Um, and so I think that it happens basically twofold. One, as a function of the Fed, like if we go back in a series of time. Before the financial crisis, there was about $52 of debt, and there was only about $350 billion in the system, so each dollar was levered 150 to 1. Then, through the financial crisis and through QE 1, 2, and 3, the the U.S., or sorry, the Fed, created $3.6 trillion. Essentially, what that has is a function of, of making dollars less scarce relative to credit, but it also only works if it causes credit expansion. So, you know, the Fed created $3.6 trillion, essentially delevered the financial system by putting, you know, debt stays the same, more dollars exist. Uh, but then the credit system starts to grow as intended. That's that's by design. That's what QE is. Um, and now today we lived in a world where there was 75 trillion of debt. So debts expanded from 52 trillion to 75 trillion today. Um, and the, the, the Fed, again, if it understood what it was doing, it wouldn't have taken dollars out of the system because it would have recognized that it was still very levered. Uh, they just would have left the money supply the same, um, but now when they you know increase the money supply again, they'll probably get to a point where their balance sheet's like you know eight to ten trillion dollars, which means that they'll have to have added six to eight trillion. Uh, each time that happens, the amount of actual dollars relative to debt becomes less scarce, and there are more people that have more dollars that aren't leveraged. again. Because like you can look at this in an aggregates and say, oh that like, shit, each dollar in the U.S. financial system. The day is levered, you know, 17 to one, like again, before the Fed doubled the money supply in the bank and the treasury, it was 35 to one. Uh, and so it, it really happens as a function of that recognizing that the system is still very levered, it's much less levered, or at least in the sense that there are way more dollars relative to the debts. But then if you look at the cross sections within that economy, there's many people that aren't indebted. And that, that aren't overlevered, and they're sitting there looking at the world and saying this doesn't make any sense. It ends badly. And then there's this thing over here, Bitcoin, that has a fixed supply and it can't be manipulated. And so, you know pe- people, you know, one thing that people need to recognize is that each time a dollar for Bitcoin is traded, the exact same amount of dollars exists and the exact same number of Bitcoin exists, at least when it when it's traded on the secondary market or when it, you know Bitcoins used to buy any goods and service. And so all that's happening is collectively the market is setting, you know, the preference for Bitcoin over dollars. And so in that way, you could say, you know, the dollar is already hyperinflating as it relates to Bitcoin, but purchasing power for goods and services is still holding. When a sufficient number of people come over and figure out that Bitcoin provides a better form of money, that's really when the dollar has its problem because people, as they move over to Bitcoin, they're getting out of other financial assets, which causes the asset values that support the credit systems to to have downward pressure actually causes the dollar to strengthen initially, um, and then and then but the but the more people do that, it actually will induce a more aggressive and more consistent you know QE from the Fed to a point where again you get to a world where a sufficient number of people have Bitcoin that they can they can exist in that world without relying on the dollar system, and that's probably when the dollar actually falls apart.
0: Yeah, and that would make one think that there's going to be substantial politicization of Bitcoin because some people within the existing system will recognize what you just articulated. Now, maybe it'll be the case. Hopefully they will. Or maybe hopefully they won't, but but presumably some will. And... um, you know, maybe it's the case that Bitcoin will continue to kind of do its thing and it'll hijack people's greed in order to kind of do its bidding. And maybe that will mean that the pushback is less severe. But, you know, I know you you kind of, you interact with uh, people in that world and people, you know, certain people of influence or you have done so in the past and stuff. What do you expect in terms of um, when the scenario or the reality that you just articulated is recognized by uh, those people you know for lack of a better term government uh what what kind of response are you expecting
1: yeah you know i think i think it is something that very naturally will be politicized greatly right you know, yeah. you know the people who say that the government will try to ban bitcoin they're not wrong um and no i don't think that the united states government will try to ban bitcoin i think that yeah um they're pro you know that that will be the first inclination but then when they go through the 4d chess um, I, I think that they're more likely they're, they're more they're more mischievous than that you know they they'll, 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 they'll want to the want to control Bitcoin you know again this comes back to the idea of taxes just like you know government's tax was valuable something's not valuable because it's taxed that um, you know if, if they recognize that this is a problem the first kind of you know inclination is to to ban it end it like let's get rid of this then you go through the process because these aren't unintelligent people um they say am i really going to be successful in banning it or do i just you know add fuel to the fire um and wouldn't it be better to co-opt it and control it than um than ban it Mm -hmm. Uh, now they won't be able to do that but like that'll be the, the schemer's thought process i think um there will certainly be like there already have been congressmen that's come out and said you know we need to ban bitcoin and things like that but i think in terms of you know actually having any sway uh, or sufficient kind of public motivation because again this only happens when bitcoin is owned by an order of magnitude of more people you know like probably doesn't happen until bitcoin's worth you know i, I don't there's like some it's probably something that happens when bitcoin crosses a trillion dollars i don't think that will happen then but there like, a, there will be a triggering that like this is a this is a problem for some people. Um, and then, but but it probably won't be until it's worth $2 trillion or $3 trillion when they like really kind of get organized to try to do something. Um, and at that point, you know, so many people are going to have Bitcoin uh, by definition. Like the value won't be higher if more people don't have Bitcoin. That, you know, the, the public opinion or even members of Congress that own Bitcoin, um, you know, the states will certainly be at odds to all of that um you know or certain states will be um so i i I think about like i don't spend i recognize that it's an an eventuality but i also know that it's like if if something is such a basic necessity and such a valuable resource that um and, and as bitcoin has shown it's just you know it's like bitcoin routes around every problem And if you say, oh, this is a, this will be a much larger problem. It's like, well, Bitcoin will be much larger. It'll be by definition, much harder to control. It'll be a much more global um, phenomenon. You know, it will be more dense within each market and it will be held and, and operated and owned in, in, in many more markets than it is today in terms of, uh, you know, um, regulatory jurisdiction. So um, I just, I, I just don't worry about that, you know, kind of because it's, gets back to that question it's like okay if that even happened it only happens in the world when you know bitcoin it you know has a, a much much larger purchasing power and and then knowing what i know about why that's the case it's for those same reasons that any ban or anything to um, stamp it down will only you know kind of fuel the fire uh, you know could certainly you know a headline could make the price go down or the value go down but it doesn't change its actual long-term value
0: so. Yeah. Circle back one sec to kind of uh, the dislocation that uh, we're currently seeing based on the monetary system we use and the manipulation. Um, you know, I, I, I see if we go to kind of a future Bitcoin denominated world where it's the, the, the monetary standard all over, um, we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, the, the price inelasticity. And so, you know, presumably in a world denominated in a currency that has that quality that prices would tend, you know, downward, you know, there would be, you know, deflation and, you know, and the, the volatility argument I think is solved if you just zoom out and you realize we're in kind of a monetization phase, but once it's evenly distributed, in my mind, at least I kind of see, you know, the the growth in the price of Bitcoin roughly mimicking, you know, GDP growth, because if there's more goods and services, there's that roughly equal demand for the currency to transact in them. But because the currency is inelastic and the, the value is generally going up, prices should should come down. And so, you know, first of all, I'd like to get your take on that, but I'd also uh, like to you to one touch on how debt works in a Bitcoin Denominated world because it's one of those issues that often comes up, and then you know, f- final capstone on that. What kind of a world do you imagine? How how do you believe the world is different in the in, in the the biggest differences that we might see being on a standard of money that uh, that Bitcoin represents? That's a uh, that's a big that's a big one. I
1: yeah. So <laughs> I I think the credit one's I think easy. I think, uh, yeah, there will still be credit. Uh, there will still be debt, like there will be Bitcoin denominated debt and there will be you know, equity, um, you know, shares of stock that, you know, are traded in Bitcoin. Uh, I think that, you know, both of those things are going to be much, much smaller than they exist today. Um, so, you know, and, and it will all come back to the the fact that you have a fixed money supply that can't be manipulated. Like, yes, somebody could rehypothecate collateral. Um, to a loan and they could have this kind of form of, 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 of money creation. But at the end of the day, that all that is doing is creating asset liability mismatches. And so, you know, it can exist on a systemic level because while it's possible to still rehypothecate Bitcoin, uh, it's like, if, if you fail, there are no bailouts, you know, or if there are bailouts that, you know, some entity actually has to be capitalized, uh, with Bitcoin. To do that, so that either comes from you know real realistically it comes from taxes. Um, so it's not to say that there there can't be bailouts. It's just that bailouts have to now be expressly paid for. Um, but that you know be, because of that, it's like I view a world where again the credit system will still exist. It will just be smaller. As soon as you know the credit expand system expands too quickly, it won't be allowed to be sustained for long periods of time. I think that the you know similarly there will be you know uh, you. Know, joint stock companies, um, but I think that people are going to figure out that if they just have a good form of money, that this whole idea, this whole bill of goods that we, we need to make our money grow will, will have turned out to be a lie. Uh, and the people will figure out, it's like, wait, no, I, don't, I shouldn't be put in a position where I have to perpetually be taking risk like I already took the risk. I you know, invested my time to do some job and I got paid a form of money. I can take that money and take risk and be paid kind of a fair market value for it, but I shouldn't have to, in order to pay for my life and my retirement type world. So I think that there's something very kind of perverse about kind of this, this mindset that as soon as you make money, you're supposed to go invest it in somebody else's company that, that, you know, so there'll be more people that save. And and, and that's one thing that that people don't recognize is if more people save. if there's a fixed money supply, how do more people save? Uh, there's just the same amount of money, it never changes. Uh, and the reality is that if more people were saving, that everyone would have a smaller share of the money supply. And so it's not necessarily that you're, quote, increasing the amount of Bitcoin in aggregate that's being saved, it's that you're getting it more distributed such that when we get into events like today that, you know, Eighty percent of people have to be bailed out that people have those reserves such that they can they can go a month or two months or three months, God forbid, four or five years without, you know, needing to, you know, they have enough money in their bank account that can pay for longer periods of time. Um, and so I think that it's a it's a definancialized world um it's a world where there still is credit there still are stocks and bonds but that you know it's a much smaller system because people do figure that exact thing out that you know in a world with a fixed money supply uh the the purchasing power of bitcoin will increase over time but it will be likely unnoticeable you know from day to day uh, or even from month to month you know know, yeah and it may even be so slow that you know you don't even recognize it over years, but it will essentially track the increase in productivity. And I kind of I have a visualization that's like if you just have, you know, kind of a flat line that's the 21 million Bitcoin, and you imagine a city growing up kind of, you know, just being you using that same 21 million, that you know, everyone's doing more jobs and there's more things, um, the money is becoming more valuable, but it's also being more effective or the holders of the currency, they're being delivered more goods for that. And that works for everybody. In that environment, the person that's producing the thing that's getting the money is getting something. And the person that has the money that's getting a good is getting something. It's just allowing for more effective coordination. And so you'll essentially have, uh, you, you you probably won't have business cycles. You will have periods of you know, greater growth and lower growth. And and there's no, there's also no definition. Like people say that Bitcoin's deflationary. It's only deflationary so long as capital is being accumulated. And that's what people need to figure out. It's like, so you're telling me that deflation could, or if this is your position, not yours, but like the people who argue that deflation is bad. You're telling me that if capital is being accumulated, which would in the Bitcoin world be what would drive inflation, or, or sorry, deflation. That, that that is somehow a bad scenario for everybody. How is it a bad scenario for anybody? The money has a greater purchasing power. You know, somebody is willfully doing some job to, to, to build some capital and form some piece of capital that delivers a good, someone that with the money is demanding. So everyone in, in the economy that's looking around and they say, okay, I need to get some of that money. I need to produce something of value in order to be able to get the money from the people that have it so that I can then go buy things that I want. That... That that, that deflationary world, again, only exists if it's working. It only exists if there's a successful state where capital is being accumulated, because by its definition, Bitcoin is neutral. If capital is being consumed and there's the same amount of people, then prices are going to go up in that world. So if, if, if capital on net is being consumed and there's the same amount of money, you would have an inflationary environment. It just so happens that if you have a world where the money supply can't be manipulated, that you're going to have increases in productivity and and that economy is going to function better so that you are consistently going to be accumulating capital, create that, quote, deflationary pressure. But it wouldn't be deflation like we think about it today because when we think about deflationary bouts and the reason why the Fed is so fearful of it is that deflation in the Fed's world isn't driven by productivity gains, it's driven by a collapse in credit system. And it's something that can drive, you know, Prices to collapse of like things that you think were otherwise stable by 10% or 20%, you know, in a matter of months. Uh, and so their deflation is a systemic issue related to the credit system, and it, and, it, and it's right in the sense that if they did do nothing, that credit system would, would collapse. But in the Bitcoin world, again, deflation will be driven by, you know, at least in steady state, will be driven by. Um, the you know, you know increases in productivity, which will effectively be kind of you know reflect you know, increases in GDP as it's defined. Um, so you know it's, it's very difficult to know what that future world looks like because preferences have been manipulated for so long via the current form of money that we're going to have to go through a, a period of time and probably a difficult period of time. Like I don't think that there's any way that the, the, the dollar can destabilize or the, the US credit system can collapse without some like serious repercussions to all of our lives that um, even if we're transitioning to a Bitcoin world and seeing lie at the end of the tunnel and being optimistic because of that there's just there's no easy transition off of a world of excess to a, a more sane reality um, but that also means that we can't predict what that Bitcoin world looks like because you know, the, the distribution of the currency will probably be far different. The preferences of society will probably be far different. And and uh, I think, you know, it will be great, but I don't know what it looks like.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I'm inclined to agree with you. I think it, it will look really great. But as you say, that transitionary period is, is the sticky part. Um, anything, you know, beyond the obvious, you know, stack your sats, protect yourself and your family that would prepare do you think is is important in terms of preparation for what seems to be an inevitably uh, perhaps turbulent transition
1: no I, I think that it's you know read the bitcoin standard you know get get up to speed you know hold your own private keys um I think that you know it's 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 recognizing the value of savings you know like kind of have have enough savings so that you you're never put in it's kind of you know fool me once shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Um, kind of like learn, learn from what's happening all around us now that we, you know, we need greater redundancy. Um, but then on the other side, it's, you know, I kind of have this view that, you know, at some point there's going to be a really difficult period in, in the United States or in the world if, as, you know, because I strongly believe and I don't think it's a crazy view, but that the dollar does destabilize at some point in our lifetime, maybe even in the next decade, um, because it is, is, it is dynamic related to Bitcoin, but that, not to be worried about that world you know and not to to you know stress out about it but just to figure out more kind of like how you can get one foot in front of the other and you know do something that actually adds value that you enjoy because if you're doing that and you're contributing that you're going to be you know you're going to be fine you know uh you know but 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 without that you know it will it will be really challenging so it's like how do you figure out how to to not be paralyzed by some kind of impending challenge versus just continue to move forward and and, and being able to like focus on that again that's kind of a esoteric concept but i think that that's really what you have to do you have to be able to focus on the day-to-day and not worry too much about kind of what happens in the future but being cognizant of the general direction so that you're prepared for it
2: and and having
1: having bitcoin is probably you know you know there's you know beyond the things that you mentioned like stay safe and take care of your family like Preparing for that world, it's like you're going to need Bitcoin to buy things in the future. Um, yeah. And so, if you're trading it for for more dollars, you're you know you may be playing the wrong game.
0: Totally agree. I think that's that's very well put because I think we all question and and in light of the last couple months, it's really brought to the forefront. It's probably shifted the timeline forward in terms of how many of us thought this was all going to play out. And it's caused us to think, oh, man, this, this, you know, this could unravel maybe sooner than we might have thought. Um, and what's the best approach to take? And, you know, like, like you said, I think it's, it's important not to be consumed by the fear of, of what may transpire and focus on things that you enjoy, where you can uniquely provide value, which you can also, uh, you know, gain value and, and enhance your, your own situation and uh you know be cognizant be prepared and take necessary precautions but you know i'm i'm always in that like i don't want to invite the big you know tumultuous like world is going to hell sort of thing by over you know by preparing overly for it so i think we we have to f- strike that balance of engaging in the solution while we simultaneously uh you know prepare for uh what w- what we see coming on the horizon on the negative side of things Yeah. It's like you, yeah, you, you have to have faith in people. And one of those things that makes me so optimistic
1: is, is again, I don't look at if the world goes into some sort of depression, I don't view it as a zombie apocalypse. It's a lot of people having to, you know, struggle, you know, and it's not, this isn't prescriptive because I also think about myself. It's impossible for me to envision myself and, you know, kind of, what does it actually look like? How does it actually impact me? You know, it's, it's kind of it's unknowable, um, and, and and you know, being aware of it is one thing. Being rendered, you know, kind of paralyzed because you are in fear of it is unproductive. Um, and so, you know, when you when you think about the idea, and one of the things again that makes me so optimistic is you look at something like Bitcoin, and it's just somebody had that idea and then a lot of people contributed to it very early on that made it go from you know nothing to something um and that type of ingenuity i think you know one of the best things about it is it will it will ultimately again i think it will ultimately lead to a more balanced economy i think you know it's like if you if you look at the if you look at any fallout from this dollar calamity it's that you know Connect the dots that there is something related to it, um, you know, as it relates to the increase in the money supply and the manipulation, that there is some connection to that, that that a lot of the imbalance exists because of you know, there's a cause and effect there. And that in a Bitcoin world with a fixed money supply, um, that there will be the ability for or not the ability, but there will be a natural course that will cause the money to be more balancedly you know, more distributed in a more balanced way. And that what that ultimately means is that you're going to have more people contributing to the kind of melting pot of ideas, contributing to the economy, you know, expressing their preferences, and that that future will be, you know, by definition because of that, you know, kind of more valuable and, and, and you know, more positive. And so it's kind of like we have to get to that pain point in order to get on the other side of it. You know, so that, that's one of the other ways that I think about it. It's like until that moment comes where, you know, we're, you know, we got to go through withdrawal, you know, whenever, you know, the, the, the drug addict, you know, isn't actually living until they go through the withdrawal, you know, type of an idea. And I think I, I view it similarly with, yeah, there is going to be some, some you know, consequences or, you know, there are, we're already seeing the consequences and it likely does get worse. But, you know, that's the natural part of healing. So I don't yeah. stress out about it.
0: I, I totally agree, and I think we have to be grateful, you know, to use the analogy, we I think we do have to kind of, we will go through a withdrawal, and then we'll get better. And I think I can't imagine a world in which Bitcoin didn't exist because there would be, I <laughs> mean, w- what do you do? I mean, the, the, the withdrawal kills you in that kind of a world. And, yeah, that's um,
1: Venezuela, you know. yeah, and, and Venezuela will not die, you know, but it's like saying like, that's what happens when you, like, it, and I think And I think about it not like just pointing or picking on Venezuela, but it is that if there weren't other monies that existed that were that continued to operate, Venezuela would be even in worse shape, right? Yeah. Like there wouldn't be the ability to coordinate economic activity to get humanitarian aid, there, whatever it may be, that it would be definitionally worse. And that's how I think about Bitcoin. If, if say the, the dollar went, every other fiat currency goes. Um, it's, it's the last of all, even if it's, you know, ca- kind of creating money more, rec- you know, kind of recklessly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if there wasn't Bitcoin and, and people could say, oh, well, we go back to gold. It's like, no, it doesn't work that way. But if there wasn't Bitcoin, then we don't have the system to reboot. You know, we don't have the the ability to get to rock bottom and then realize that we're you know, no longer at rock bottom type of a scenario. Um, that, that, that money really is that core function that allows for us to, to, to bootstrap out of rock bottom, um, or, or at least, you know, maybe rock bottom's not fair, but to, to get to a point where then you start to, you know, marginally see things improve, that money is really the thing that allows for all that coordination that, that allows for improvement in the first
2: place.
0: Yeah, and I'm probably saying this because I spoke with uh, Brandon Quittem last night, but you know, Bitcoin being that kind of mycelium that decomposes the, you know, the 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 dead system which fell on the forest floor and, as, and repurposes all the energy there and from which emerges, you know, something new and something better. So analogies abound, of course, but yeah, just extremely grateful that uh, we're not looking at a, a black hole on the horizon and rather, you know, ray of light that we can engage in and, and try to build something better on top of. Um, Parker, I could legitimately talk to you for another two, three, four hours because uh, I feel like we've barely scratched the surface. But I, I know I, I know you're a busy guy, and I'll, I'll let you go now. In a second, we'll, we'll have to put a pin in it for uh, for round two. But uh, I typically finish this off with just a quick set of uh, the, the rapid fire questions. So it's a couple of questions, and then it's a few word associations at the end. Are you down for for doing a couple yeah. of those? Sure. So you can, pa- you can pass on any of them if you don't want to answer them um, and take as long as you like to answer the, the first, re- the first group, there's 10 quick questions and then the last is just a 30 second word association sort of thing. Okay. So the first one is, and probably the, uh, the most involved, but uh, what is money? How do, you, how, how do you define money?
1: The function that coordinates all other economic activity.
0: If you had to explain Bitcoin to a 10 year old, what would you say?
2: There will only ever be 21 million.
0: What does Bitcoin succeeding look like to you?
2: Everyone in the world using Bitcoin.
0: Best resource for learning more about Bitcoin.
2: A Bitcoin standard. Any other
0: investments that you're interested in?: I own cattle. Nice. Uh, what's one piece of advice you give to someone just entering the space?
2: read a lot
0: is there a movie or song that song that's most related to bitcoin in your opinion
1: uh the bull began his run
0: (laughs) can bitcoin be stopped if so what is its biggest vulnerability if not why not
1: uh collective action failure
0: what is something about bitcoin you don't understand very well uh, and you'd like to spend more time on studying
1: Pass. I misheard the question so I can't
2: answer it (laughs) Uh,
0: when if ever do you think the first central bank will uh, add Bitcoin to the reserves and will they exist in 20 years next five years so yes what have what have you learned about yourself or how have you changed if at all as a result of learning about uh, and interacting with Bitcoin
2: I focus more on the present um, and
1: you know find myself you know wanting or demanding fewer things of luxury
0: What is your most controversial or contrarian view or opinion if nothing on bitcoin, any subject is fair game? Uh,
2: um Pass. <laughs>
0: Ballpark estimate of Bitcoin's price in five years. Um,
1: stock to flow model.
0: If Bitcoin were to fail, you wake up tomorrow, something is broken, irre- irreparably so what's your, you know, what do you do? What's your reaction? How do you reorient your yourself?
2: I figure out what the money is that, that is working.
0: Um, would you sell all your Bitcoin to see it succeed?
2: Trick question.
0: (laughs) All right. Last part, word association. I'll just say a word. You tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Democracy. Our government. The lightning network.
2: Uh, Great potential. Government. Keeping the people down. Human rights, um, freedom, violence, in some ways, human nature, Trump, President, ego, natural, FOMO, human psychology, wealth. Not needing things. Privacy. Uh, Critical. Hate speech. Doesn't exist. Gold. The best form of money before Bitcoin existed. Guns. A right. Revolution. Uh, Natural to the human condition. Socialism. The devil. Family. Uh, The most important. Inequality. Um, Human creation. Hell. Your own mental state. Liberty. Um. The, the greatest
0: cause. Energy. Uh, the root of all other goods. And Bitcoin. Future of money. Parker, man, really appreciate the time. Really enjoyed this. Uh, before I let you go, is there anywhere you wanted to direct people, whether unchained or your own personal stuff or anything like that? Uh, you can check out my series, Gradually and Suddenly, if you got
1: questions on you know various different topics. I try to you know, hammer home a single topic that's either, you know, something that people don't understand a lot about Bitcoin or just a, a fundamental
0: view. Uh, Phenomenal check series, us out. For sure.
1: Yeah. Check us out at unchained capitalcom uh, If you need multi-sig vaults or, you know, if you need loans, just check us out, check out caravan. Um, yeah. But uh, we're, we're easy to find on Twitter. I am as well. DMs open. Um, shoot me questions. Um, and yeah, look forward to, Look forward to the
0: future. Well, man, I really appreciate the time and the work uh, in your writing and the work that you guys are doing at Unchained. I think it's a huge contribution to the space. So keep it up and uh, I look forward to connecting again in the future.
1: All right. Awesome. John really appreciate it and look forward to coming back on sometime.
0: All right, buddy. Take care. See Yeah.